This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Open Source Property by Stephen Clowney, James Grimmelman, Michael Grinberg, Jeremy Sheff, and Rebecca Tushnet. The casebook is licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. That means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back, everybody, to the Property Lectures. This is part four, and in this part, we will be discussing transfers. Rules about transferring property are created by law. There are only certain ways people can rearrange property relations. Some rearrangements happen even if the people involved don't want them. And some don't happen even if the people involved do want them. Knowing the rules is key to understanding which transfers work and why. There are several methods of transferring property. The key voluntary methods are gifts, sales, and transfers at death, which can be divided into transfers by will, also known as transfer by devise, and transfers by operation of law because of the decedent's intestacy, that is, dying without a will. We will focus primarily on transfers of interests in real property by sale and the elaborate legal infrastructure established to support such transactions. But we will begin our study of voluntary transfers with the law of gratuitous transfers, especially gifts of personal property. With this most simple of transfers, we will lay a foundation for understanding how the law of transfers tries to respect and facilitate the intent to consensually transfer property while guarding against fraud and mistake, all while being mindful of public policy interests that may compete with the private interests of some property owners. Now moving to gifts. Although most litigated transfers involve sales, it is useful to study gifts for several reasons. 
First, Gift Law reviews our previous exploration of the significance of possession to ownership. Second, Gift Law highlights how some problems in contract law arise only out of executory promises. That is, completed promises involving property will often be valid as a gift, even if they lacked consideration. Gift law also provides an introduction to methods of transferring land, particularly transfers by deed and transfers by will. In order for a valid gift to occur, three elements must be present. 1. The donor must intend to give the property as a gift. 2. The donor must deliver the property to the donee. And three, the donee must accept the gift. We won't spend much time on the third element, because when the property has some value, acceptance will generally be presumed in the absence of an explicit rejection. Unlike a sale or a contract, a gift does not require consideration. This leads to concerns that often shape judicial doctrine. First, without tangible consideration, we need to keep people from lying about what was given to them. Because gift issues often arise after the alleged donor died, courts have been concerned to protect the donor's heirs from having the donor's estate stripped by people who claim to be donees. Second, and relatedly, we desire to protect the system of written wills and to encourage its use. A standard will must be signed and witnessed. A system that easily allows pre-mortem gifts might undermine people's incentives to take the time to write a will. They might think they can always just give their property away when death approaches and also harm the legitimate expectations of those who are named in a will. If the person who writes a will, known as the testator, identifies specific property in her will, but sells it or gives it away before she dies, the device in the will is nullified. It's no longer her property to give away when she dies. Although people named as devisees in a will have no legal rights to the property before the testator dies, they might nonetheless have practically and morally compelling expectations, especially if we worry about the people surrounding a dying person exercising undue influence and extracting gifts that the dying person wouldn't give if she were thinking more clearly. Thus, by making it more difficult to give gifts, we may protect the overall system of property transfers. This concern can lead courts to find that no gift has been made, even when the would-be donor very clearly wanted to give the property away. 
Now moving to intent. Although lay people may not be aware of this distinction, there is a huge legal difference between I will give you this car when you graduate and I now give you this car. I will give you this car is a mere promise with no legal force. No matter how serious the speaker's intent is, it is not an intent to make a present gift, and it will therefore not result in a gift. And delivery. Simply put, the property must in some way pass out of the grantor's control in order for a gift to be valid. This is known as delivery. Land doesn't move, at least not for these purposes. So manual delivery is impossible. And symbolic delivery of land has always been accepted. At early common law, the transfer of land involved a ceremony called livery of season, in which the transferor physically handed over a piece of dirt or a twig from the land to the transferee. Fortunately, transfer of an interest in land is now generally accomplished by a written instrument known as a deed. At the minimum, a deed must describe the land to be transferred, contain some words indicating an intent to make a present transfer of title, and the grantor's signature, which courts construe liberally almost any mark or symbol of the grantor's approval, including the signature of the grantor's agent, will be sufficient. And what about personal property? Most gifts, especially gifts of personal property, are given during life. Nonetheless, many litigated cases arise around near-death gifts. The common law required manual delivery of personal property for a valid gift unless the object was too big to move. If the object was too big to move, substitutes for physical delivery were acceptable. Keys are a classic example. Handing over car keys is constructive or symbolic delivery of the car. The keys symbolize the car, thus symbolic delivery, and provide the means for exercising dominion and control over it, so constructive delivery. Today, because all states require car owners to register the title to their cars, many states require that a gift of a car is not complete unless the donor also hands over the title documents. Modern courts often relax the delivery requirement to allow constructive or symbolic delivery even of smaller, more portable items, but some delivery requirement remains. Suppose the would-be donor signed a document in front of two witnesses saying, I now give my daughter $100,000 and gave the document to his daughter but the donor didn't actually deliver the money. Should we relax the delivery requirement because we are very confident 
that a gift was intended? Or does delivery still serve an important purpose? Now, another variant of symbolic or constructive delivery, that is, delivery to a place. Sometimes the would-be donor does not physically hand the object or document to the donee, but instead puts it in a particular place from which she expects the donee to retrieve it. Should this constitute delivery? Courts have disagreed about the details, but if the putative donee does not have any right to control the place and other people do, then there is generally no delivery. Another rule is that if the putative donee has exclusive dominion over the place, there generally is delivery. And now, intermediated delivery. Handing the property or an appropriate symbol of the property to a third party for delivery to the donee will complete delivery as long as the donor has no power to recall the third party. If the donor can still control the third party and interrupt the delivery, by contrast, then the delivery is not complete. These principles have led courts to diverge on the proper treatment of checks. Because a check can be stopped by the payor at any time before it is cashed. The majority of courts say there's no delivery until that time. The payor has not given up complete control until the check is cashed. Other courts say that, at least with respect to gifts made in anticipation of death, when the check is not stopped before the donor dies, the gift is complete even before the check is cashed. An acceptance. Acceptance is generally presumed for gifts of value. If the donee doesn't want to accept the gift, then the donee may disclaim the gift. This usually only arises in cases of attempted transfers by will. And irrevocability of gifts and their exceptions. A gift once given is usually irrevocable. That is, once the gift is complete, the donor may not change her mind and demand the gift back. The donee may voluntarily give the property back, but that's a second transfer of ownership. Irrevocability makes it important to be able to figure out when the gift was complete, because before it is complete, it is revocable. There are two notable exceptions to the irrevocability of a gift. Gifts causa mortis and conditional gifts. In the materials that follow, we will explore complications relating to both. Now moving to gifts causa mortis. The gifts with which you are likely most familiar, gifts to mark a special occasion or relationship, are generally inter vivos gifts, that is, gifts given by living people, 
The Latin literally means between the living. A special category of gift law exists to deal with gifts that are not given in a will, but are given because the donor feels he is soon to die. Again, concerns about interfering with the law of wills and estates shape judicial treatment of this category, known as gifts causa mortis, literally gifts on account or because of death. The elements of gift causa mortis are the same as the elements of an inter vivos gift. One, intent. Two, delivery. And three, acceptance. But the donor must also, four, anticipate imminent death. A gift causa mortis is subject to a condition subsequent. That is, if the donor survives the peril, that caused her to fear death. The gift is either revoked or revocable. In most states, the gift is revoked automatically, while in others, the donor may choose to revoke the gift. In all states, if the donor dies from the anticipated cause, then the gift becomes irrevocable. Some jurisdictions extend this to situations in which the donor dies from something else within roughly the same time frame or in which the cause of death is related to the anticipated peril. Courts are often suspicious of gifts causa mortis. Courts may apply the delivery requirement more stringently than in other gift cases. And moving to conditional gifts. Speaking more generally, it is possible to give other kinds of conditional gifts. A conditional gift is a gift that will return to the donor if a condition subsequent is not fulfilled. By contrast, a promise to give a gift if a condition precedent is fulfilled is an unenforceable promise to make a gift. For example, a student's parents might give him a car conditioned on his graduating law school in three years. If the student fails to graduate in that time, the car must be returned. During that period, however, the gift is otherwise irrevocable. The parents cannot change their minds in year two and demand the car back as long as the student remains willing to fulfill the condition and remains on track to do so. Now moving to land transactions. In the year 1250, to transfer ownership of land, the grantor and grantee would physically go to the land. The grantor would physically, or perhaps metaphysically, put the grantee in possession by handing over a piece of dirt. The grantee would swear homage to the grantor, and the grantor would swear to defend the grantee's title. This was a public ceremony, performed in front of witnesses who could later be called on to recall what had happened if necessary. In contrast, written conveyances, called charters, 
were treated with skepticism. They were considered an inferior form of evidence because of the risk of forgery. In the seven and a half centuries since, this attitude has completely flipped. Now land transactions are paper transactions. The statute of frauds almost always requires a written conveyance, now called a deed, to transfer an interest in real property. Transfers by operation of law, primarily through adverse possession and intestacy, are very much the exception. In addition, land transactions are influenced by the common law's attitude that land is of distinctive importance, so that parties dealing with it need special clarity about their rights, and by the fact that land transactions are often high stakes with hundreds of thousands, millions, or sometimes even billions of dollars at stake. Now moving to delivery. The old phrase is that a deed was effective when it was signed, sealed, and delivered. But the seal is obsolete, so the principal elements are that it be a sufficient writing, that it be signed, and that it be delivered. Delivery of deeds has much in common with delivery in the law of gifts. It too can be a subtle question. In a famous passage of his landmark 17th century treatise called Institutes of the Laws of England, Edward Coke wrote, As a deed may be delivered to a party without words, so may a deed be delivered by words without any act of delivery. That sounds paradoxical, but Koch continued, as if the writing sealed lies upon the table, and the grantor says to the grantee, Go and take up the writing. It is sufficient for you. Or, It will serve your turn. Or, Take it as my deed. Or the like words, Either is a sufficient delivery. There are at least two ways to do delivery right. One is to sign and hand over a deed at closing, when all of the necessary parties are in the same room and can execute all of the appropriate documents effectively simultaneously. Another is to use an escrow, a third party who receives custody of the signed deed, along with instructions to deliver it to the grantee when appropriate events have taken place. What is a mortgage? A mortgage is an interest in land. It is not a possessory interest. That is, the owner of a mortgage has no right to enter or use the property the way the owner of the fee or an easement owner would. Instead, mortgages exist to secure loans. A secured loan is backed or secured by a specific asset, such as a house or a car, which the lender can seize in the case of default. An unsecured loan is not secured by any specific asset, for example, credit card debt, and student loans are unsecured. 
the borrower owes the money and the lender can go after the borrower's unsecured assets in case of default. But if those assets are too small, the unsecured lender is out of luck. Secured loans are generally considered less risky than unsecured loans for obvious reasons and should bear lower interest rates. Now moving to eminent domain. We have seen that property may be transferred by gift, by will or intestate succession, by sale, and by foreclosure of a security interest. We now address a final mechanism by which property may change hands. Eminent domain is the inherent power of the state to transfer title of the private property into state hands. In the United States, when the government takes land in this manner, it must pay the owner just compensation. This is a constitutional requirement as the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment provides, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. This brief constitutional provision encompasses three distinct issues, though not in this order. One, has there been a taking of private property? Two, is the taking for public use? And three, has just compensation been provided? Precedent under the Takings Clause regulates the manner in which the state directly exercises its eminent domain power. As we will see, however, the clause also limits the ability of the state to regulate. Property owners sometimes challenge property regulations as being so onerous that it is as if the state has appropriated property and compensation is therefore due. Now moving to rationales for eminent domain. The power to take property is recognized but not granted by the Constitution and long historical practice. But what justifies it? Simply calling it an attribute of sovereignty does not provide a reason for its use. Property ownership usually encompasses the right to say no. If I want to ship a mobile home across your field, but we don't agree on a price, it's my duty to stay out. I cannot declare your property mine in exchange for a judicially determined measure of just compensation. What makes the state different? One traditional explanation concerns the transaction costs of government enterprises. In the normal market, Buyers can choose from among competing sellers. If house in town A are too expensive, you can look for one in town B. And if you are priced out of the market, so be it. The state is often more constrained. Imagine a planned road that will connect two cities. Building the road requires assembling multiple connected parcels. The number of plausible routes is finite and increasingly constrained as plans progress. Owners along the planned route 
therefore may hold out for higher sale values, knowing the state has few alternatives. The absence of a functioning market depletes the social surplus of the road and may kill the project altogether. Eminent domain enables the government to engage in projects like these without the risk that a single property owner might exercise a veto. And moving to the issue of public use. The Fifth Amendment declares that if private property is taken for public use, compensation is required. What function does the term public use play in the clause? One could read the phrase as descriptive, that is, as describing situations in which the government takes property via eminent domain, as opposed to taking it via the exercise of other powers, like taxation or punishment for a criminal offense. Under that reading, the only limit to the state's taking authority is its willingness to pay and the operation of other constitutional requirements, like equal protection, due process, etc. The Supreme Court takes a different view. Its precedent treats the term for public use as a substantive limitation to the takings power, albeit not a strong one. Now moving to eminent domain operations. Local governments carry out condemnations in a variety of ways. There is no standard eminent domain regime. Some states require some sort of pre-condemnation activity, that is, formal findings that a condemnation is necessary or efforts to negotiate with the landowner. Others do not. Some jurisdictions require the condemning authorities to initiate a judicial action. Others allow an administrative procedure, giving the landowner the right to challenge the taking in court. Some states provide for expedited procedures or quick-take provisions, either as an independent cause of action or by motion within an ongoing proceeding. In Illinois, for example, the condemning authority files an eminent domain action in the circuit court for the county of the property. The complaint details, one, the complainant's authority in the premises, two, the purpose for which the property is sought to be taken or damaged, three, a description of the property, and four, the names of all persons interested in the property as owners or otherwise, as appearing of record if known. Either the condemning authority or the property owner may request a jury trial. Expedited procedures, called a quick-take procedure, are also available upon motion. And just compensation. What is just compensation? The standard approach is fair market value. Evidentiary difficulties aside, the fair market value metric potentially understates the value of the home from the perspective of the property owner in at least three ways. First, 
Fair market value ignores subjective values. A property owner often values it more than the market, as reflected by the fact that it has not yet been sold for the market price. If the property is a home, it may have high sentimental value, that is, if it is where one raised children, or offer amenities that cannot be easily duplicated but are not reflected in market price, that is, proximity to friends or work, etc. Second, eminent domain is a forced transaction. The landowner may experience the transaction as a violation of personal autonomy. And third, to the extent the property produces a surplus, the displaced landowner does not get a share. In other words, suppose five lots are each individually worth $10,000, but they can be assembled into a park that confers $100,000 of benefits on the surrounding area. The owners of the condemned lots do not share in the surplus. They still receive only $10,000. What happens when only part of a parcel is taken? The general approach is to allow compensation for the effect of the severance on the land retained by the condemnee. Imagine O owns Black Acre and White Acre as one parcel with a combined value of If Black Acre is taken for a fair market value of $50,000 and the severance leaves White Acre worth only $40,000, O is entitled to compensation for the lost $10,000. Note, however, that if O owned only White Acre and its value was reduced by $10,000 due to the next-door condemnation of Black Acre, O would receive nothing. Thanks, everybody. That's all I'd like to talk about in this lecture. Take care.